Let's read the beginning of this letter together this morning. Paul and Timothy, servants of King Jesus, to all God's holy people in King Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of King Jesus. So at some point in the relationship between Paul and Philippi, there was a beginning. There was a first day. There was a genesis. And Philippians, remember, is a letter. And so if we were to study any other ancient letter of the time, we would probably have to ask the question, who's writing the letter? Who's receiving the letter? What is their life like? Where do they live? What was their relationship? Um, it'd be great to know how they met, how they knew each other. Um, when did this happen? And, and why are they writing? Why is this letter even happening? And we're going to learn a lot of that today. And so if your house church uh, already read Acts chapter 16, what we see is the beginning. We see a story of how Paul met the Philippians. The book of Acts is great because the book of Acts gives us a history of all these little churches that we read about. All these house churches that Paul started and others started. And Paul is quite a character. I mean, we read in Acts chapter 8 and 9 that Paul didn't much like Jesus' followers at all. Paul was upset. Paul was angry. He was angry that his people and his friends had begun to follow this new sect. This new sect of Jewish people grown up Jewish for generations and generations, and now they're following the teachings of this, what Paul thought was a false Messiah. I mean, he was really upset. He was angry. And he began to do anything he could to push this movement down, and people got stoned, and, and people got chased out, and people... Um, were persecuted because of what they believed. And Paul was behind a lot of that. Paul went on a journey, and on that journey, he came face to face with Jesus, and Paul's life changed. It's a great, um, unbelievable account of Paul's life transformation, and you can read about that in the book of Acts. But then Paul switches. I mean, he becomes this new person. And he starts to go by the name of Paul, um, and, and earlier he went by the name of Saul. And Paul becomes this person who begins to change fundamentally from the inside out, and he begins to uh, announce that Jesus is Lord. He begins to uh, partner with people, and, and, and he begins to heal people. He has some miracles he's done too, but he, he pulls people together and forms these little house church, these little gatherings, these ecclesia all over the empire. 
Philippians is one of those, the people of Philippi. Now, if you take a look at the, at the map, what happens is, is Paul leaves Antioch and he goes on a journey with Silas. And Silas and him are looking, and there may be others with them, but they are, they are going to do exactly that. They're going to announce that Jesus is Lord and not Caesar, and that there's this new way to live. There's this alternative kingdom. There's this alternative Lord, and um, that you can be uh, freed, that you can be experience freedom in, uh, from sin in your life, and you can become a part of what God is doing. And so he's going from... His strategy is to go to major cities and start these gatherings, start these house churches. And everywhere he goes in the story, if you read verses 6 through 8, everywhere he goes in the story, he feels like God is saying, no, don't go in there. Don't go this direction. Don't go to Asia. Don't go up here to northern Turkey. And um, it's a long journey. Like if you were to plot that on a map, it's like 400 miles of walking and and really in a sense having doors kind of shut in your face and it says over and over again that the spirit said no that the spirit blocked us from going to these certain places and then it says in verse 9 during the night paul had a vision of a man of macedonia standing and begging him come over to macedonia and help us uh, Macedonia is across the Aegean Sea. And after Paul had seen the vision, it says, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Here's what's so fascinating. Two real quick things. One, um, I think for many of us, we have this belief that following Jesus and doing what Jesus wants and following the will of God in our lives is this linear thing that there's just step you do this, you read this book, then you do this, and you go to this conference, and then it's just, it just unfolds in front of you. And that's not it at all. In fact, following Jesus has a lot of ups and downs. And, and if we're honest, it has a lot of downs. And it has a lot of winding roads, and it has a lot of time in our lives where we just feel like things um, just aren't happening. And so this story gives me encouragement because um, Paul and Silas go through this as well. The other thing that's amazing about the book of Acts is it's written by this guy named Luke, who's a physician. And he is, up to this point, he has been all the way up through, really, Acts chapter 16. It's been in third person. So they did this. He said that. They went there. And this is where it changes in verse 10. Verse 10 says, After Paul had seen the vision... We got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. And notice he doesn't say that God had called Paul to preach the gospel to them. He had called us. So for the first time in Acts, we see this, this us and, and this we. And, and what's interesting, it's like this is the joining of Luke to the party of Paul and Silas. And uh, this is the genesis of the Philippian house church. So they cross the Aegean Sea. They head up to Philippi. Paul meets Lydia, a wealthy Jewish businesswoman. And he meets her by the river. 
And the reason why he goes to the river is because in that time, in order to have an official recognized Jewish synagogue, you had to have eight Jewish men to form a Jewish synagogue. And uh, turns out there wasn't because if you didn't have a Jewish synagogue and you were Jewish, what would you do to worship? Well, you would go to the river. You would go to the river on Sabbath because on, at the river was a reminder of God's providence and God's rescue of the people of Israel uh, crossing the Red Sea, but also the Jordan River moment. And so if you didn't have a, uh, a synagogue, you would go to the river. And Paul knows this place does not have a synagogue. Um, he looked it up. I'm just kidding. And then he goes to the river and he meets Lydia. And he explains who Jesus is to Lydia and how Jesus is the Messiah, the promised Messiah, come back to rescue, come back to uh, usher in a new kingdom. And Lydia's like, I am in. And, um, and then there's a, a period of time where Paul continues to go back to the river over and over again with uh, Timothy, uh, Silas and um, Luke. And uh, they're preaching the gospel um, they're preaching this new, um, this new uh, news that Jesus is Lord. And then what happens is, is a 24-hour event that, in, that finishes off this kind of beginning of Paul's relationship with the Philippians. And this 24-hour event goes like this. There is a, a slave girl who is demon-possessed, and she can tell fortunes. She can tell people's futures. And so the, the master in charge of this slave is making a ton of money off this foreign slave girl who is possessed by a demon that tells people their future. Paul uh, casts the demon out of this, uh, this slave girl, and she has been freed. She comes to follow Jesus. Uh, her master is very upset because he's no longer making money off of her abilities and goes to the authorities. The authorities take them, the guys, and throw them in prison uh, they throw them into the center, the most um, difficult part to escape of a prison, and lock them down. Well, in the middle of the night, God does a miracle. The chains fall off, the doors open, and the Roman jailer is freaked out because if they escape, he's a dead man. But they don't leave. They share the gospel with him, they, the announcement that Jesus is Lord, that there's a new king, that there's a new Lord, uh, the king of the universe, and he repents, he, he gives his life over. Um, he actually asks, what must I do to be saved, which is, uh, what must I do to, uh, to know this Jesus? And they say, believe in the Lord, believe in the Kyrios. Um, meaning to trust, to switch your allegiance to over from Caesar to this Jesus. Um, and his whole household, his whole household comes to follow Jesus. This is a, in one 24-hour period, right? Then Paul tangles with the Roman magistrates. They realize that he's a Roman citizen. They can't do the things to him that they want to do because of his citizenship. We talked about citizenship uh, of a Roman colony, and we talked about that last week. And then in verse 40, it says, After Paul and Silas came out of prison, they went to Lydia's house where they met the brothers and sisters and encouraged them. Then they left. That is the beginning of the church. 
at Philippi. A wealthy business Jewish, you know, business tycoon, really, Lydia was. So you got this, this businesswoman, you got this foreign uh, slave girl, demon-possessed slave girl, and you have really a suicidal, if you read it, a suicidal Roman guard. <laughs> and they are the beginnings of the church in Philippi. Nothing flashy. And what's amazing is, is in the letter, Paul says that he who began a good work in you will carry it on. Now let's see what the carrying on is. Because 10 years, fast forward about 10 years, Paul is in prison. He's in Rome. He is writing a letter to them. And, and we're going to get into this in a few weeks, but basically to be in prison in Rome, you actually had to pay for your own food and your own clothing. And so your family or benefactors or whatever would actually, or if you had the money, you would pay for your own uh, clothing and food. And, and Paul is out of money and he's literally dying. And, and out of all the churches... Out of all the churches that Paul is in relationship with, the Philippian house church comes in in the clutch. They come in and they send Epaphroditus um, to Paul in Rome from Philippi, which is like an 800-mile journey. So they send Epaphroditus with money for Paul. Epaphroditus walks 800 miles. Like, imagine that. 800 miles to help a dude in prison. That's nuts. And, uh, you know, they are ultimately then Paul writes this letter through Timothy, um, sends it back with Epaphroditus. And ultimately, here's what this is. This is a glorified thank you letter, like a letter of such great gratitude and thankfulness. Um, but he knows that they need to be encouraged. They're facing Epaphroditus has told them stuff. They're facing kind of the hostility um, and the opposition to Jesus as Lord as the gospel, obviously. Um, that culture is still there. There's still a, a worship of Caesar happening. Um, and so they're facing pushback and they're facing persecution. And remember what the gospel is. The gospel we talked about last week, what Paul means by the gospel is different than what many of us think of when we think about the gospel. A lot of us think of salvation as the gospel, but Paul says, no, this is what the gospel is. So the gospel is the royal announcement uh, that Jesus is Lord, or put another way, the good news that the crucified Messiah is king of the universe. That is the gospel. And so let's go through the beginning of this letter really quick. Uh, verse one, it says, Paul and Timothy. Um, Timothy is not the co-author. He's most likely dictating as Paul speaks this letter of thanksgiving and encouragement. Um, most likely what many people believe is that Timothy is not in prison. He's close to Paul. He's, he's caring for Paul, but he's realizing they're running out of money. So Paul, uh, Timothy begins to write all the churches. We think he wrote uh, letters to the churches all over. And the Philippians are the ones to respond. Um, and then Paul says this, servants of King Jesus. Now, this is a very interesting translation because 
and I'm reading from the NIV, but almost every single translation has servants. The word is doulos, and the word literally means slave. Literally. There's no ambiguity on the translation of this word. Now, within our American context, um, there's been some nervousness of using the word slave in this translation. And we need to understand what slavery was in the empire um, and how it was different than our American understanding of um, the African-American slave experience here in America, which it obviously has been brought to the forefront these last number of months in all the uh, unrest that we've experienced. And, and really, we're learning a lot, especially for many of us that um, grew up in different circles. The point I'm trying to make is that sla slavery in the empire, they, they say between a third and a half of the empire was in some sort of a slavery structure, meaning you were owned by somebody else. And what Paul is saying here is, I am owned. I am not my own. I am actually, I am owned by somebody else. And who is this somebody else? He says it's King Jesus. Or the word here is Christos. Or uh, the Mishiach is, is the, uh, the Hebrew word that, that, that works here. And it means, it means four different things. It, it can mean Christ, uh, Messiah, King, or King of the world. And what happens is, is uh, when I read at the beginning um, the, the translation, I did substitute King Jesus for Christ. And some of you were probably asking, do you read a weird translation? And it's like, no, sometimes I just swap that out because... Uh, what we understand as Christ, as American Christians, um, is the divine one. And so we put this huge emphasis on Christ's divinity, and rightly so. Jesus is all that and more. But, but we don't get um, all that from the word Christ. We get it from other uh, phrases and other words. What Paul means by Christ, this is really important, is the long-awaited king of Israel. That's what Paul means. Paul is deeply Jewish. He is, he's got a lineage of Jewish faith that, that, that runs into the marrow of his bones. And one of my problems with Western evangelical reading of Scripture is it tends to have an ahistorical reading of the Bible, meaning um, Jesus might as well be a 17th century Frenchman um, as long as he died on the cross, Right, um, because uh, many many we just read into this idea that Jesus um, died for our sins, and that's great. But there's there's a historicity to it. There's a location to it. There's an ethnicity to it. Jesus was a Hebrew. He was from a long line of Israel Israelites, and um, what he is the culmination. He is the long-awaited Messiah. The long-awaited. Uh, piece of, Juman, of, of Jewish history and thousands of years of human history has all been leading up to. And that's what Paul is trying to get at here. And then it says, to all God's holy people. Older translation, some of you guys might have a translation that says, to all the saints 
which is like a really wonderful word. And we'll, we won't dive into that right now, but the word is actually, um, comes from the word hagios, um, which is of ho- the holy, and it actually stems from this idea that comes out of Exodus 19. I'm gonna read Exodus 19, about four verses to you. It says, then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called him to him from the mountain and said, this is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob. And what you are to tell the people of Israel, you yourselves have been what I did, I have seen what I did in Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, You will be for me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. These are the words you were to speak to the Israelites. So he says, you, Paul's basically saying in this, you are Israel. Not ethnically, but you are Israel. You are God's chosen people. And God has been working through people for a long time. It's just that those people haven't always allowed God to work. And now you and me in the spirit, like right now in our day and age, we are, we, we are people of God. We are God's chosen people. And, and you and I, you need to understand, you're not saved into a vacuum. You're actually saved. You're rescued into a people, into a community. You are God's holy people. And so this is what Paul is saying. Um, and, and you might say, I'm not holy how can you say that about me? I'm not holy. I, I do evil things. And I, even when I do good things, it's with bad motives, you know. Um, and the answer is always in Scripture, keep reading. Because he says to all God's holy people in King Jesus at Philippi. This is, this is the big piece. Because if you might be asking, how can I be holy It's because you are in Christ. If you have surrendered your life to Jesus, if you have experienced his uh, forgiveness in the spirit in you, um, Paul's favorite way to talk about you is in Christ. He mentions it 86 times in all of his writings, 86 times. It's like his favorite way to to, to express who you are. And who I am in Christ. Check out Romans 6. It says, Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in his death like his we will certainly also be united with him in resurrection like his. So Paul's saying, you died. Uh, you were baptized into Jesus's death. And just like Jesus, you died. And, and not in the name of Jesus, but actually into Jesus. And you died and came back from the dead just like Jesus. Like you, well, and one day physically that will happen to you, but but, but you are living a new life. You are a new creation. You are a new, you are in Christ. You have been adopted into the family of God. Colossians 3 also says this, since then you have been raised with Christ. 
Set your eyes and your hearts on things above. And then he goes on and says, together with the overseers and deacons. And these are two great words. Um, episkopos, and, uh, which means bishop, and it's where we get the word Episcopalian. And the uh, synonym to that is presbyter, which is where we get the word elder, which means presbyter, well, or presbyter, we get the word Presbyterian from that. And what he's saying is he's, he's highlighting the fact that there's a leadership structure, that there is some organization to this community. And just like them, we have leadership in our church too that, that, uh, that love and serve and shepherd and pastor our community. They've done a tremendous job in this time to, to help craft and, and reach out and craft kind of a vision forward and a mission forward. Um, and then they have deacons. He, ta- he calls them uh, diakonos, which is the Greek word for deacons. And this is actually really interesting. And I'm going to do some more study on this on my own. But these are actually a group of people that we see originate in the book of Acts, um, Acts chapter 6, I believe. And what they are is a group of people that make sure that everybody is cared for. But not only that, they actually make sure that everybody um, has a fair shot at needs being fulfilled. And so there's like a, like a social justice element to that. They're actually people that are, that are trying to make sure that people are cared for no matter whether they're Greek or they're Jew. And, um, but that's, that's a whole nother conversation. So this is the one and only letter where Paul adds overseers and deacons. This is the one and only letter that Paul says, that Paul mentions in his thanksgiving, in his address to the overseers and deacons. And um, it's almost as if um, Paul's looking at this church 10 years later that started with a wealthy uh, Jewish businesswoman and a, a slave girl who tells fortunes and a suicidal Roman guard. And 10 years later, it looks as if God is carrying it on to completion, that there's movement, that they've, they're transforming, they're becoming more like Christ. And so as we finish off this morning, two things I wanna concentrate on. The first one is that word, doulos. I wanna talk about slavery. And when Paul uses this as his opening line, um, you know, there's a lot of metaphors in scripture that we really like. We like this idea of sons and daughters. We like this idea of adoption. We like this idea of being the bride of Christ. Uh, We like to be called the redeemed. And we emphasize the ones, the metaphors we like but we mute the ones sometimes that we don't. Paul starts off by saying, I am a slave. And to Jesus, it is is in slavery that we find freedom. See, freedom used to mean, in our culture, freedom used to mean the ability to choose between options and choose the good and the true and the beautiful out of those options. That's what it used to mean. 
Now in the wake of the 60s, and some of you were around for that, and um, freedom, you know, and then you fast forward to more of a relativistic, postmodern view of morality and life. Freedom now means the ability to do whatever in the world you want to do, whatever you crave, whatever you desire, and without feeling bad about it, and you shouldn't have to hear about what people think about that in your life without getting any pushback. To Jesus, that is slavery, not freedom. I know this little side note, but when you're literally ruled by your urgings, when you're literally ruled by your body and what your body tells you to do, that's slavery. And Jesus died for you to experience freedom from that. And so when your cravings and your urges and your, and your when, those, when those are moved, when those are changed towards what is right and true, when you have reordered loves in your life, to the degree that you live that way, Jesus is able to step into your life and do work. Your life is open to God. And so when we talk about this idea of surrendering our life to Jesus, what happens is, is that begins to crack open those places in our lives that are out of order, that we're in slavery to. And what I want to say is that God is only involved in your life to the degree that you are under his authority. I want to say that again. God is only involved in your life and in my life to the, to the degree that we're under his authority. And the less of the slave master metaphor fits in my life, the less that it fits into my life, the less I'm actively actually experiencing the lordship of Jesus in my life. You are a slave to the degree that God is involved. So... When people ask me, how do you know the will of God? How do I find the will of God in my life? The short answer is live as a slave. Live as an actual slave to what God is doing in your life. Fully open, fully available to God. Uh, this idea, this posture of God, lead me and guide me, show me, um, open, open up my heart to this, show me those places in my life that are still under slavery to something else. Uh, God is always pushing us forward to the, to the degree that we are open. God is not a, Jesus is not a life coach. He's not a vending machine. Um, he's not a therapist. Uh, but he is, as Paul says here, he is our master. He is our Lord. And, and if, you want to, if you want God to write the story of your life, you have to trust him with your whole life, not just pieces of it. The second thing I want to talk about is vision. This vision that Paul experiences before he heads across the Aegean Sea to Philippi is, is, is so amazing. I was reflecting on it this week. And the vision, I think, is harder. I think the vision turned out to be harder than Paul thought. It turned out to be longer than Paul thought. It turned out to be different than Paul thought and better than Paul thought. Let me just run through those really quick. 
It was harder because he didn't see in the vision, at least it wasn't recorded here, he didn't see in the vision that he would be beaten and chained and run out of town. He didn't see any of that. He just saw a man from Macedonia who said, come and help us. And so many times in our lives, we, we've come to follow Jesus and we, we don't think it's going to be this hard. But it is harder than we anticipated. And we need to wrap our heads around that and we need to ask each other for help in the journey. Like I said, it's not meant to be done by yourself. The second thing is, is um, you know, well, let me just back up real quick because there's this, there's this when-then trap that you and I fall into all the time. And the when-then trap goes like this. When this happens, then life will be good. When I find somebody and get married, then life starts. When I retire, then I'll find real joy. You know, when the kids move out, when this happens, when I get this career. What happens is, is I think we idealize the future. And it's not heaven on earth. So a marriage is not heaven on earth. I tell this to people we counsel all the time uh, getting ready for marriage. It's not heaven on earth. Your career is, and your retirement is not heaven on earth. Getting back to normal in this season is not heaven on earth. Don't idealize the future because when you do that, you won't be ready for the hard. And God is, God is asking us to follow him a slave-master relationship. Jesus is our master. We are a slave God is asking us to follow, and it's going to be harder than we think. And so I just don't want you to wake up 10, 20, 30 years from now and go, oh, joy actually does come from Jesus, not from my career, my retirement, my marriage, my circumstance. Second thing is I think vision is longer than we think. Uh, Paul goes to Philippi. Um, and it, it, this letter happens 10 years later. Like he's seeing the joy of this uh, fulfillment of the vision and his obedience to following Jesus years later, a decade later. And he's in prison. Uh, Paul goes to the river for months. Um, this isn't a mega church. Boom, guy walks on. There's just a bunch of people meeting. Um, it takes time. It takes years. Um, sometimes I think the vision is different than we think of. Think about this vision that Paul experienced. It's this vision of a man in Macedonia saying, come help us. And the first person he meets is a woman. It's just different. Sometimes it's not what we expected following Jesus and, and obeying. But here's the, other, here's the thing that's important for you to understand. Paul would say that it is better than he could have imagined. Jesus' vision for your life is always better than what you could dream up. Harder, different, longer, but better. And it won't be pretty, and it won't look linear, and it may look like a failure to the surrounding world following Jesus. 
And it may look like prison, and it may look like rejection and sacrifice, and it may look like slavery. That's what it might look like, and that's what it probably should look like. And um, I don't know where you're at today with this idea. Um, maybe you're wrestling with a version of following Jesus that fits the American narrative of capitalism, consumerism, the American dream, individualism. Maybe you're struggling with that tension. Maybe that's been something that's really annoyed you about me because I keep telling you about this. I don't know. Um, I don't know where you're at. Maybe you're struggling. Maybe you're frustrated. Maybe you feel like you're, in a sense, like Paul, and you're wandering and doors are closing and, and things aren't opening up like you thought. Maybe you're like that. Maybe you're by the river. Maybe you are, um, you know, you're saying, okay, Paul, uh, God told me to come here. And you're like, Paul, and you're, you're just at a river. And there's just not that much going on. Maybe you're like Paul and you feel like you've just been beaten and battered for following Jesus. I don't know what the... I don't know where you're at in your life. I don't know what the future holds for you. But maybe you can like honestly say it in this moment, I don't know what the future holds, but I am a slave of the king. And that, ladies and gentlemen, that is something that no matter who you are and where you're at, what your experiences have been, we bring all of that together in community. Together, we are slaves of the king. Let's help each other live as slaves of the king. And before you go, I'm gonna just read over you, read over you the rest of the beginning of this letter as a prayer, as, a, as some sort of a, a charge to you, an encouragement to you. Paul says, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the announcement of Jesus as Lord from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began, he who started something in you, We'll carry it on. We'll keep it going until it is one day complete in King Jesus.